Welcome to ASRM Today, a podcast that takes a deeper dive into the current topics in reproductive medicine. I'm Jeffrey Hayes. Today on the show, we're discussing fibroids in the Latina Latinx community. Joining me is Dr. Ruben Alvaro, who is Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Stanford Medical School and is the Division Director of Reproductive Endocrinology and Infertility at the Lucille Packard Children's Hospital. He is board certified in obstetrics and gynecology and in reproductive endocrinology and infertility. He's a fellow of the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology and the American College of Surgeons. Dr. Alvaro, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jeff. And uh, can I call you Jeff? Of course. Uh, or yeah. Jeffrey, okay, good. Yeah. It's, I'm, great. It's, uh, I'm grateful to be here. Thank you very much for the invitation. Part of your research interest is improving the health of the Latinx community, as well as evaluating the role of critical thinking in medical education. Now, when I put those two things together, I start wondering, and my question for you then is, is there a large discrepancy in reproductive care research in diverse communities? Oh, absolutely. I think that this is, you know, there are some data that can be inferred. There's lots of, uh, uh, you know, uh, retrospective data that we have looked at. There's a focus in certain aspects of uh, the African-American community in this particular question in particular, just because it is a well-known fact that African-American women definitely have a really much higher rate of fibroids than other populations. What's uh, suffered a little bit along the way is that the Latina, uh, Latinx uh, women uh, population has not uh, had the same level of scrutiny in terms of uh, fibroids, in terms of their uh, utilization of uh, treatments for it. And so, so those are aspects that really need to be addressed. And uh, luckily, there's some things we'll talk about that actually are taking place that are improving the, the processing of this information. Is it, is it due to misinformation or even lack of information that's causing the issue uh, within the Latina, Latinx community? It's a constellation of, of, of issues. And uh, part of it is that much of the data is retrospective and, and actually self-report, which makes it harder to interpret because it may underreport the number of women that truly have fibroids. Uh, because there are many women that may have fibroids and don't know it because they don't have symptoms or they haven't, you know, what Erica Marsh, who's another leader in this field, who's done a great work in this area, refers to as an altered perception of reality, or, or I forget the exact term she used, but it was an altered perception of, of their symptoms, which may lead them to think that, you know, this is something that is not abnormal. And then they're, they, for, they therefore don't uh, seek uh, care. Earlier, there may be a delay in diagnosis, which obviously, anytime that happens, there's uh, uh, worse things happen because more aggressive treatments may be necessary down the line when they could have been uh, less invasive if they were caught earlier. And fertility and sterility in the issue, I believe, of the fall issue last year of 2020 issued a number of articles about this. What were some of the major findings? Was there surprises? I know that there was still the call to do more research, right. but was there, was there anything that you saw that was surprising? Not really, because honestly, I've been in this field long enough that I, I'm, I'm not surprised when there's uh, as, not as much information as there should be. Now, you know, there's never enough information. There's never enough research that has been done. There's always more you can do, and each research article leads to further questions. But really, what is necessary uh, going forward is to prospectively address and collect more information so that we can 
you know, inform both providers and, and patients. That's one of the problems is that uh, providers are often uh, not misinformed, but they're not, they're, they're, their perception of what needs to be done is not as heightened. You know, there is a really well-recognized discrepancy in the use of abdominal hysterectomy, for instance, compared to laparoscopic hysterectomy among Latina women and also African-American women, but since we're addressing the Latina women, among Latina women, uh, they are more likely in general to get an abdominal hysterectomy, which is a you know, potentially more morbid procedure. And this is even when you control for risk factors such as fibroids and, and so forth, which, in, you know, if they're very large, may lead to the necessity to do something like an abdominal hysterectomy. So, so I think that there's, there needs to be more information uh, available. I think that there needs to be more aggressive action. But there's also needs to be a community education because many women don't recognize that their symptoms are truly abnormal. And that's something that's important to address. Now, how we do that really is, you know, it's all location, depends on where you are. If you have uh, geographically an area where there's a larger church-going community and you know, maybe through there, but it depends on, you know, how the, the, the tool that you use to educate women, but it is important to do uh, because it may empower them to seek the treatment that they deserve. And they may not be aware of laparoscopic versus abdominal. That's an important uh, distinction that may not be something that's commonly known in, in many communities, all communities, you know, regardless of, of racial or ethnic background, but particularly in a, in a community where, you know, they may be new to the country, they may be using public insurance and things like that. that can, all of these factors can affect the kind of empowerment people have or women have to seek the care that they deserve. It's interesting you keep mentioning communities, getting out to the communities, being in churches, in, in places that you know that communities will hear people out. I guess that leads me to ask you is, should physicians uh, and specialists start going out more often? Should they be more involved in the community? For example, you know, I know that it's part of, for a lot of professors, it's part of their degree track, you know, to, to or it's part of their job to keep going out and building in the community and, and being in that outreach. Do you feel that same way should? Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've always been a big proponent of advocacy from physicians. I think, you know, even outside of this topic and in terms of, you know, climate change, in terms of so many other things, I think we have been too darn silent in terms of our advocacy. And I think that that's something that we really need to do is to get out into the communities and use our knowledge because, you know, we have a certain level of respect among community members, in some cases, suspicion. And there's, there's no question about that. And that's another thing we need to ameliorate. But I think that there's a significant respect that we do hold in, in the community that we are just not utilizing appropriately. You know, there's a narrative that we can use to, to educate and, and try to you know, push for, for better understanding of, of medical and biological issues. But we're not really good at narrative. You know, we're not really good storytellers. And so when we when we don't do these things, then, you know, the community, you know, doesn't get the full value of the education we have, you know, the, and then the, you know, skill set, the, uh, you know, the clinical acumen that we've had over the years that, you know, they don't benefit fully. I mean, if they see us, it's a 20 minute visit in clinic, and then, you know, then they forget some of the things that we said and so forth. But if we're out there in the community, and it's something that is a consistent part of our, you know, advocacy, then I think it's something that's going to be, you know, more sustainable. And I think the, that folks would be better educated in the long term. I'm speaking today with Dr. Ruben Alvero. We're talking about fibroids in the Latina and Latinx community. You mentioned earlier that 
you know, there are some positive things happening and also on the horizon. Uh, could you just take a moment to talk about those? Well, I mean, one of the things I've been, I've been in communication with, uh, again, Erica Marsh comes up a lot. And Erica Marsh is, is a real powerhouse in you know, fibroids among African-American. And she's turning her direction very much in the direction of the Latina population um, at this point. Uh, she's currently conducting, uh, and I'll, I'll read it just because I want to make sure I get it right. It's the, uh, the Environment, Lyomyomas, Latinas, and Adiposity Study. Uh, otherwise known as AS, E-L-L-A-S, uh, which is prospectively looking at fibroids in the Latina population. And, you know, one of the, one of the real problems with prior studies have been, like I said before, their self-report. And self-report is not always the best way of getting the information. It's sometimes inaccurate. And, you know, sometimes you forget that somebody told you, if they told you five years ago that you had a fibroid, you may not remember that since you have, if you haven't been having any problems or if you don't perceive that you have any problems, then uh, that you may not know that. So you may under report by doing this prospectively. And over time, we actually are going to, she, I should say, she and her team will be looking at the growth prospectively, and then also using ultrasound, not, you know, not taking somebody's word for it, but actually going ahead and doing an ultrasound to really assess what the impact of fibroid burden is on, on these women. Normally, and I am more of a, of a lay person in this, but from my understanding too about it, and my wife, you know, had suffered from from fibroids. You know, it's usually an early indicator is heavy menstrual bleeding. Is there anything that you would recommend to your fellow physicians who will begin treating more of the Latina Latinx community? What would you suggest to them as far as like what what they should be looking for diagnosis wise? Yeah, no. So, so in terms of uh, evaluating patients that uh, that come to us, I mean, I think that we need to utilize all the tools, uh, and in that an ultrasound is a very powerful one that we have to assess women that that may have come to you complaining. And and I think that this is not something that's a, a mystery. I think the majority, you know, I can't think of anybody that wouldn't, the patients that come to you and they say, I'm having heavy menstrual cycles. Well, an ultrasound and a physical exam and and a CBC, and there's certain basic things that we do to assess that. So I don't think that that's really a significant mystery. I think that the complexity comes in and part of it is, is how the patients perceive their diagnosis because they, you know, they may see, you know, it's it's an interesting thing. There are some studies out there that have looked at that and how they see their their symptoms and they may say, well, you know, my mother had very heavy menstrual cycles. So this is the norm for, you know, this is what I expect. And I I kind of expected this to, to happen. You know, separately, I do some research in Wyoming among a Native American population looking at PCOS there. And unfortunately, COVID has put a real stop to that recently. But, you know, one of the things that we're working on is is basically qualitative assessment of how women perceived their symptoms. And one of the things that we found is that women thought that they were supposed to not have periods and not be able to get pregnant. And, you know, they, they really didn't realize that PCOS was a thing. And so this, you know, the same kind of thing happens with fibroids, with abnormal uterine bleeding, with symptoms of pressure on the bladder, pressure on the rectum, that these are not normal findings and, and there are things that we can do about them. Now, it's easier to do things earlier in the course when the fibroid's smaller, perhaps, um, maybe it's accessible hysteroscopically, and then that's easier to take care of. Once it gets beyond that, then it's something that is a little harder to take care of. So, yeah, so I think that just addressing these things, I, I don't know that that most providers would not do these things, 
But there's no doubt that there are disparities in how physicians, you know, see their patients, you know, in infertility in general. I will tell you that we did a qualitative study back in Denver a few years back. And one of the findings was that where a lot of physicians didn't think that there was fertility or that there were fertility issues in the Latino population. The perception was, and this is very, you know, it's, 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 I don't understand how you come to this conclusion, but that Latinos and Latinas don't have problems with fertility. Well, no, you know, of course, everybody has, every population has a rather constant uh, rate of, of infertility. And that's, and that includes everybody, including uh, Latinos. And so, so I think that there's, there's that change in, in perception. Now, one of the other things that's, that is a disparity is where you are. So if you're working in a situation and, you know, it's, it's hard, uh, uh, because you're serving primarily a uh, uh, public insurance population, there's there's issues that that uh, may you know may from your perception complicate things in terms of access to care and so forth. But we got to treat everybody you know absolutely the same, and there's a standard of care. And so whether you're in a urban or rural or teaching or non-teaching, I mean we really need to to kind of hold to a very high standard of how we care for our patients, and that's that regardless of background, ethnicity, race socioeconomic background, whatever. And I think that there might be, you know, I think it's pretty well recognized that there might be a disparity in these areas. Well, I appreciate your time today. And I am just in awe of the work that you're doing right now. Dr. Ruben Alvero has been my guest today. Thank you so much for being able to come on the show. Well, I appreciate you having me and I, I look forward to, uh, to working together in the future, perhaps on other issues as well. Thank you very much. Absolutely. I'm Jeffrey Hayes, and this is ASRM Today. This concludes this episode of ASRM Today. For show notes, author information, and discussions, go to asrmtoday.org. This material is copyrighted by the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and may not be reproduced or used without express consent from ASRM. ASRM Today Series podcasts are supported in part by the ASRM Corporate Member Council. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ASRM and its affiliates. These are provided as a source of general information and are not a substitute for consultation with a physician.